Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode number 136. It was recorded on December 10th in rainy Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, New York. My guest for this episode was Sasha Turrentine. Sasha is a photographer and a traveler and a climber. That's really cool to me because I don't know very much about mountain climbing. I think it looks absolutely amazing and pretty terrifying. So it was really cool to get an education on technical aspects and to hear some of her amazing stories. This comes up in the episode, but she is a total badass with uh, some really, really great life experiences. So I was happy that she was able to share some of those and that you'll get to hear them. Please make sure you go to the show notes for this episode. I will have a link to Sasha's work. Because while she takes pictures of mountain climbing, she also takes a lot of other really amazing photos. We talked about uh, Gloria Steinem. We talked about her trip to, well, not really trip, her time spent in in Nairobi in Kenya. And she's got really cool pictures and projects for those things. So go to her website that's in the show notes. And also there will be a link to her Instagram account. There's also a link to my Patreon. If you are able to support the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, and you want to, you can go to patreon.com slash thevoyagesoftimvetter. That's a subscription-based service where you can give monthly, and that will keep the stories coming. If not, please check out my social media, uh, give it a follow, give the podcast a subscribe, and leave a, a rating and review. That goes a very long way. All right, instead of the normal interlude music here, I'm going to play a new song by Julian Baker. I love Julian Baker, and I don't know why, but this song, to me, fits really well with the snowy, cold uh, New York City pre-winter that we're experiencing here. So this song is called Tokyo, and then that will take you right into my conversation with Sasha. Enjoy. Thing that I've been 
So I'll first say uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you for allowing me to be in your home uh, and for, for taking the time. I'm excited about it. Welcome. You asked me before I started recording, how did you hear about me? So let me try to like build that narrative and then I'm going to have <laughs> you sort of like explain your path okay. to where I got. So uh, I'm not really big on social media. I should probably be bigger considering I'm, I'm doing an art form that sort of relies on self-promotion. Um, so, you know, I use Instagram for it and I keep an Instagram for my own sort of um, inspiration, I guess, when my spirit has been like ground to dust from work. <laughs> I, like to, <laughs> I like to look at people who are doing a variety of like really cool and interesting things yeah. um, because that makes me feel a bit fulfilled. So I don't know how at some point I started to follow some people who are in the climbing community. Okay. Um, you don't climb. I don't climb. Okay. I have been to Brooklyn Boulder. <laughs> You've been there. Um, but somebody that I don't know at all, uh, but I admire through the social media universe is somebody that you know. Uh, her name is Shelma. Mm-hmm. And I do this all the time. I always say this when people are like, how'd you meet me? Like I go down rabbit holes. So like I'm following somebody's <laughs> cool stuff and then I'll see someone else or whatever or they'll link to that person. I'll check them out. And I saw your photography and I was like, whoa, this is really, really sweet. Um, and I believe somehow I saw you were in New York. So I was like, ooh, I'm going to reach out to Sasha. And that is how I found you. Okay. But that's my path to that moment. So I want to <laughs> sort of build your path to yeah, that yeah. moment. Okay. Um, and I think maybe the first place to start with that is before photography or anything like that, uh, how you got into climbing, I guess. Okay. Um, I have been climbing since I was about six years old. Um, my dad is a rock climber, so, uh, I inherited climbing. I didn't, I didn't find it. It found me. Um, you had no choice in the matter. I, right. Mm -hmm. And I did resist when I was younger. I, um, I, it was my dad's sport. So I was, I, I knew that it, especially, uh, you know, 25 years ago, it was much less popular. It was a pretty, it gave you a lot of street cred to be rock oh. climber. And I, and I did know that amongst my peers. So to that degree, I cared about it outside of that. Uh, I can't say I was that interested in rock climbing until I was probably maybe like nine. Um, and then I started competing. Uh, I got oh. really serious about it. At, at nine? 14. Wow. Yeah, I started competing when I was pretty young, but it, you know, it was it was local and fun and um I don't want to cut you off, but can I dissect that for a second? Cuz yeah, again, like I'm I'm a novice okay. with this world. Yeah, ask away. Uh what what does a competition look like? Is it speed? Is it difficulty? Uh there are three. So, uh I don't know if you've seen this, but um rock climbing is going to be in the Olympics for the first time in 2020. Whoa. Um which I've seen. Uh, so I'm sorry, I'm cutting off because this no, is like okay. super exciting. When I was I was uh, in Indonesia for the 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 ASEAN Games, they call it. It's, it's basically like the the East Asian Olympics. Yeah. And I don't know if you maybe saw this, but there was an Indonesian woman who won, and it was like an indoor climbing. Is that it, or is, is it? Yeah. So it's all indoor. Okay. okay. So like the Brooklyn boulders. Yeah. Um. Uh. So yeah, all all competitions take place in. Indoor, meaning on artificial walls. 
um, that are either, well, they're, they used to be made out of plywood. Now they're made out of like a plaster, um, and then holds like that are made out of forms of plastic. Um, and there are three cat, three disciplines. Um, there's bouldering. So what you did at Brooklyn Boulder. So Uh it's like, um, short ropeless climbing, uh, it is the most, physically difficult. It's basically the most difficult moves your body is capable of, of achieving. It's because the, I don't know the terminology, I apologize, but the grips are far away, like what you're grabbing? Um, no, it's not about distance, although it can be. It, it's, I would say it's more about um, the how good the hold is, meaning like, you know, how well you can hold on to it. Ah, uh, okay. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, so how small the hold is or how like something called a sloper is like a hold that has basically no shape to it. Uh. Um, so yeah, so bouldering is like 20 feet and below. Um, ropeless climbing, you fall into pads. Whoa. Um, and then there is sport climbing, which is uh, rated by difficulty. And you have a rope on you that you clip in as you go. Um, and it's about how high, it's always about how high you get. Okay. So in both bouldering and difficulty, it's about how high you get on the wall. Um, and there's like a point value. This is all like changed drastically since I was a kid. Like it's been an evolution because rock climbing. Becoming more popular, huh? Yeah. Well, gyms have only been around for 40 years and even less in the U S and, uh, so Yeah competition climbing is like a very new thing. Mm. So we're, it's constantly evolving how you score it. Cause it's sort of, uh, it's not entirely objective. Okay. Um, so that makes sense actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then the third category is speed. Um, okay. Speed is not taken very seriously here in the U S it is in parts of Europe and Russia. Um, but Anyway, so the, for the Olympics, it's going to be all three categories combined. Oh, it's exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. People are not very happy about the three disciplines being combined, but that's a different story. So by teen years, you were competing in similar type of Yeah, by 14, I was taking it. I was very serious about it. I was on the U.S. team. Whoa. Um, two years, and then I had a... A uh, long tendon tear oh. in my left hand that took me out uh, at 17. Um, I had left high school a year early, actually, to just focus on my competitive rock climbing. Wow. Career, which sounds crazy, given that there's like virtually no money in the sport, especially then. Um, but it was what I wanted to do. And uh, yeah, and then I had this injury and I maybe could have pushed through it, but uh, decided to go another direction. Was your dad a hobbyist or was he also like a, a professional? He, no, he was not. He was not paid. Um, he was just obsessed with rock climbing from a young oh. age. He started when he was really young, like about 12, but it was all outdoor mountaineering. Um, so he didn't grow up with climbing gyms cause they weren't around. Um, so the whole competitive aspect of it was totally foreign to him. Okay. Yeah, you've written some really endearing things about your dad. They're really no, they're really great to read, and uh, hopefully this isn't too embarrassing. You no, have this. No, it's okay. You have some really great photos. So uh, 
people should go to the show notes and you can just click it uh, as you're listening and you can sort of follow along on the Instagram if I mention certain things. But there's a picture of you and your dad like pooping out in the wild. <laughs> um, I mean, of course we can talk. I put it on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I thought that was... I thought that was really cool, and I was like, "Oh man, like this this would make for a great book." Like not not that picture specifically, but like uh, like climbing through the years with my dad. Like I think oh, that totally, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. We have a very special relationship, you know. I people respond to it differently, like, and I find that really because it's all I know. You know, your your relationship to your parent is all it's your normal, um, but some people think it's the greatest thing on earth, which I do as well. Um, and others are like kind of weirded out by how close I am to my dad. And, and that makes sense. You know, it's like if you have, if, if you're estranged from your parents or, you know, you don't have any way of relating, it's like, why are you you're so, you're so close to your dad? That's, that's weird. Like, what's that about? What's that like? And uh, it's, um, yeah, my, my dad's like, my one of my favorite people on on earth. He's he's a really special guy. You're lucky. I I work with youth, um, many of whom have incarcerated fathers or right. multiple parents or dad's not around. So uh, yeah, yes. you're one of the lucky Incredibly, ones. I mean, beyond like within the lucky ones, I'm lucky. You know, it's it is really rare. I've got some questions that maybe uh, if you are in the climbing community or maybe if your friends are listening, like you'll roll, you'll roll your eyes at oh, me. No, no, um, but I just want to, some things that I've thought about before. So um, you mentioned that your dad was, this was like prior to, to gyms and things mm-hmm. like that. So when you were learning, you were learning outside with your father? Um, yeah, well, I started outside. Yeah, so I started climbing... Um, in Yosemite Valley, mm-hmm. um, which is now famous because of uh, Free Solo. Yeah. Um, and and then I, I think, well, so the gym in Santa Cruz, California, my hometown, uh, opened, Pacific Edge, opened in 1993. So it really wasn't that long. I, I think the gym was actually already, uh, yeah, it would have already been open when I had started climbing. So it was, there, was a, there wasn't very much of a gap. Um, between when I started climbing in gyms and outside, it was kind of always the same. So you you have a fantastic picture from Yosemite, actually. I believe it was that I was looking at. And it just looks like it looks almost like sheer rock. Like it looks uh, really smooth, and for me, really terrifying. And <laughs> I just like even looking at a still photo feel a bit of anxiety. So I was wondering about when you're climbing, sort of the headspace that you're in, if mm. if part of it's scary, if it gives you clarity, if for some people who do like adventure sports or other things like that, that might seem really scary to people, but gives them their sort of comfort zone. Uh, like what is your headspace like when you're climbing something like that and you're, uh, the, the danger level is much higher than if you were in a, in a gym? Yeah, um... It's a good question. It, it varies. Uh, I, I I experience all of what you you listed. I mean, I it can be scary. It uh, it is clarify. It brings you a a presence of mind that's rare. Um, 
I was just talking to Shelma, actually, who um, left. She's basically in New York like a month, a year at this point. She travels so much. Uh, and she was leaving the next day and uh, she was telling me how she had had an upsetting exchange with someone at an athlete summit for the company Arcteryx. And uh, they were they it, they had to go climb like shortly after, and she was saying how she was having a really hard time transitioning between mm. this difficult state of mind that she was in and having to go rock climb, uh, well, you know, which can be scary. And and um, and then she said, you know, but it you know it was exactly as it always is, which is like climbing was exactly what I needed to um, to let go of that exchange like, uh-huh. because it, everything drops away and, and you know that's why we climb it's like it, it's a meditation almost that's interesting um and part of that is because of fear you know it's a survival instinct you're in a really intense uh situation you're on a wall it takes your full attention so n- all of those like nagging thoughts that that other part of you you know that pr- part of your brain that never turns off or that many people have the experience of never turning off, uh, is is not. Wow, it's not talking to you, which is is nice. <laughs> I've seen, um, and, and I'm thinking of two the, the next two examples I'm going to bring up. I'm thinking of I saw both of these in Joshua Tree. So uh, I've seen like rocks that don't have much height to them and are pretty round, and people set up mats. And it to me almost seems like like a practice rock, maybe where mm. people, you know, you're not actually climbing a summit or anything like that, but maybe just practicing the art of like finding grip and things like that. Does, are they going sideways or are they going up? Yeah, and you even have some photos, um, but yeah, maybe sideways. Like they're not very far off the ground, and like maybe this so isn't that's making. Bouldering. Oh, yeah. okay. So yeah, bouldering. It bouldering can be both. Uh, a climb that you top out, meaning you go to the top of, okay, uh, and climb over or onto the top of the boulder, uh, or you occasionally traverse, meaning you go from side to side, ah. um, which you know many argue or feel is like a bit contrived, but can still be fun. Mm. Uh, and in you know in some ways, rock climbing is contrived. Period. So I don't know. It you know, teach his own. But um, yeah. So bouldering is are the big, the big rocks that have like fallen off of large. Yeah. Rocks yeah. Exactly. Whatever. Yeah. Um, that is that is the art of bouldering. Okay. And this next one also, I'm gonna stop prefacing everything. But um, <laughs> I've seen so like again in Joshua Tree. Um, I was at one location where it had where, where people were climbing sort of like a sheer face. But then if you've ever been to Joshua Tree, it almost looks like um, like giant pebbles. Like you can you can walk up a lot of like mountains and structures in an easy way where you're not climbing just by going from rock to rock. And so like that's what I was doing because I'm not climbing. Yeah. But there was one where like the back led up to that sheer face where people were climbing up the front. And I was wondering for for uh, spots that have been climbed often um, – and you know, folks are hooking their their carabiners on. Are those are those hooks already in place, or are you like having to hammer those in? It depends. Okay, that is that is the short answer. Um, the longer answer is that there are a variety of ways to protect yourself when rock climbing with a rope, uh, or not protecting yourself at all, as seen in Free Solo with uh-huh. Alex Honnold. 
um, who Ter- many of you have probably seen. Terrifying. But, uh, but most of us do not free solo and we protect ourselves with a rope. Um, there is sport climbing, which I had mentioned before. Um, and that, so nobody or uh, nobody that I know of, maybe in certain parts of the world, is is uh, hammering anything in as they go up anymore. Okay. Uh, that used to be commonly practiced in something called aid climbing, which I won't go into right now, but it's um, basically where you hang on the gear as you go up. So you're not doing the actual rock climbing with your body. You're like using the equipment as you go and you're hammering in what are called pitons as you go. Um, but that's not something that people do so much anymore okay? Um, because of uh, progress in equipment uh, and evolution and uh, understanding of like how we can basically do less damage to the rock uh, and also, yeah, so it's sort of a leave no trace mentality and also that we've just like learned how to make better equipment. So now aid climbing and traditional climbing, which is what my dad grew up doing, is where you do place your own equipment as Mm. you go up. Um, And that is, there's a whole variety of of equipment, but uh, primarily it's uh, something called a camelot, um, which you play, it's sort of like a trigger that you pull down. I can show you. Um, But and you place into cracks, and then it expands. Whoa! Let it go. Um, and they have an; they're incredibly strong. Okay. Um, they can break out of. They're so strong that they they can actually be problematic in softer rock like sandstone. They can break the sandstone oh if you take a fall. That is terrifying. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, are incredibly reliable and strong. And then there are nuts or stoppers. Um, which are older equipment. They're called passive. It's known as passive gear. Um, and th- it's very straightforward. It's, it is what it looks like. It just jams itself. And, you know, it's like a, a lump oh. of metal and you just stick it right into a crack and it holds you if you fall or you hope. Anyway, if you know what you're doing, <laughs> it will hold you. I've seen in a number of documentaries uh, where people are doing, I guess, like a multiple day climb um, and they're actually sleeping suspended in like hammock or sort of like, uh, I forget what you call those sort of like solo tents. Um, have you ever done that? I have not spent the night on a wall. Um, that is something I, uh, for a long time was a goal. Now, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn down the opportunity to do a multi-day Wall climb, but it's not a priority of mine. Okay. Um, uh, but yeah, the short answer is no. I have not. That um, you call that like you call that a wall bivy. Uh, that's it. Bivy like a, like a bivy yeah. sack. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, interesting. <laughs> my I- dad has. Uh, my dad did El Cap uh, in the seventies. I think it was seventy three. Oh. He was in his twenties. Uh, it took him five days. He ran out of water on his last day. Whoa. Um, he was climbing it with... The, the craziest part to me about the whole story, other than that, you know, very few people were doing El Capitan at that time, so it's it was just more of a radical thing than it is nowadays where, like, lots of people climb El Capitan. Uh, people who only have, like, two years of rock climbing experience will go out and do El Capitan. Uh, it, it was that he went with a complete stranger... <laughs> 
he like met him the day before. He was just that desperate to do like that kind of meant I will never and have never yeah, been he does that sounds way. awesome. <laughs> like he's just like so hardcore, like obsessed in love with rock climbing. And I can't say that I feel the same way. Like is, is do you have to like sort of, uh, have a lot of trust in the people that you're well, climbing? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, for me, climbing is like, like it's not, climbing is not enough. Mm. It's like, I need to enjoy the presence of the people that I'm with. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, it's totally ruined for me. Um, I've never been what you would call a dirtbag climber, like somebody who just rock climbs, who like lives in their car and like eats, breathes, sleeps, dreams, lives rock climbing. Like it's just never been that way for me. Even when I was competing, like it's like part of the reason that I was so uh, captivated by competitive rock climbing is because I'm a competitive person. Mm. So there was an element of something else to it other than just rock climbing for the sake of rock climbing. Um, I, I admire people who, you know, are so like, pure and single-minded and love it so much. I'm just, I'm a little bit more ambivalent. Well, about the community aspect. So uh, I mentioned that you have uh, a number of articles that people can find on your website. You wrote an article about representation within the climbing community. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously uh, with the culture and climate of today, representation amongst um, many different professions, interests, uh, even hobbies, um, places of work, is something that people are finally talking about and you know starting to focus on. So I'm wondering because you you wrote about uh, like barriers to entry and things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, I was wondering if you could speak about that in relation to the climbing community and maybe um, what some of those barriers are and how people are overcoming it and how you came to meet uh, some of the people within the different groups and communities within the climate community that, that you know. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, climbing is a, it has a high barrier to entry, um, for a multitude of reasons. Um, climbing in a gym, uh, is expensive. Uh, memberships, Mm. day passes go anywhere from, you know, 12 to 25 bucks. Um, memberships are anywhere from 60 to $110. And then that, you know, doesn't even begin to tap into like the gear that you need. Climbing shoes are over everything. Basically everything is over a hundred dollars. Um, climbing shoes, a rope. Um, and then, you know, and then there's access. So like you need a car to get to go climb outside, uh, even to get to the gym. I mean, in a city like New York, you know, we have public transportation, which is great, but in other cities, it's not as easy. Um, so having a car, uh, you know, climbing outside is, um, it's a oftentimes in more remote areas. So not only do you need a car, uh, or a means of getting there, but you also need, uh, uh, the knowledge and, uh, the gatekeepers to that knowledge are, you know, huge access barrier points. Like, so, you know, I, I had a huge advantage, not only as a, you know, able-bodied cis white woman, but like my dad just handed me rock climbing. It's like, Mm. just took me out rock climbing. He taught me everything I needed to know. Uh, if you're somebody who, just find, you know, rock climbs once or hears about it and wants to get into it. Like, how do you even, 
how do you even start? Like you have to meet somebody who's willing to take you out, right. uh, who you both trust and who is patient enough or willing and wanting to take you out climbing. Um, and then, you know, so you bring into the picture things like, you know, um, structural, institutional racism, uh, you know, uh, sexism, and uh, it, it, it's complicated. So it's been it, historically and, and still today, like is a very uh, white dominated sport, um, but, but it is starting to change. And uh, the outdoor space in general, which, you know, rock climbing is within, uh, has become incredibly, incredibly political, which is, you know, many climbers are like, could not, uh, care less about, or they're frustrated or angry that the sport and their pastime is becoming this political issue. Um, it, political in regards to identity and in- inclusion. Yeah, that we're that we're talking about. Okay. These issues, and they're saying, you know, um, just go out and climb, as mm. if the two things can exist separately. Which is just, of course, like entirely a, an opinion based upon privilege and ignorance. Um, so anyway, for for me, it's like I am couldn't be more pleased. Uh, and think that the only direction forward is to be having these conversations. You can't have rock climbing with it. It, it exists in the public larger space. So it's mm. like, this is um, a no brainer. Uh, I got involved in uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion issues through mostly through, I mean, in part through my work with Shelma Jun, who's the founder of uh, Flash Foxy. Mm-hmm. Um, which is how you found me. Uh, and, um, I also, as a, you know, part-time wannabe writer, uh, I sort of like dedicated myself to, if I was ever going to be writing for climbing publications, uh, if I wasn't writing an advent, like a personal adventure story, like I would mostly be like dedicating my research or writing to the, like the Jedi movement, as mm. it's known now, the acronym. Uh, just it's right. It, I feel like it's uh, adding letters occasionally. So it's justice, equity, diversity, inclusion. Um, so yeah, uh, I kind of lost my train of thought, but no, no, you've got it, um, and I appreciate that. It's cool too for me again as like uh, someone viewing from the outside. Because again, if somebody's interested in like learning about climbing or mm-hmm. in the photography, which I haven't even gotten to, but I'll get to, um, I'm like, this is the first time I've looked at my notes. So if you need to cut me off at some point, I'm like, oh my god, oh, no, that 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 that. Okay, because <laughs> you, you there's yeah. a lot of layers to you here. Um, but uh, well, well, so yeah, the point I was making was that you all sort of reference each other and. Like you can really go down this rabbit hole of like all these cool different people totally. doing really cool things. Uh, it's I, the best thing about Instagram. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. It, honestly, yeah. Um, I have here the person. I, I guess it's a picture of you at Yosemite taken by uh, Savannah Cummins. Can I see it? Uh, it's just my notes. Oh, it's it's your, not actually okay. um, a picture of me taking my. Do you, um, but do yeah, you, a portrait? Oh. Do you know her? Yes, I do. Okay, uh, another person people should check out because really amazing photography. Yeah, she's she's a badass. Sorry, my. Is that about? I'm oh, you can it. you can say okay, whatever okay. you want. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, d- 
uh, on the note of like being in this community and I guess knowing Shelma, you went to Korea to climb. I did. Yeah. Please tell me about that. I think that's <laughs> that's so cool. Um, yeah, in in May of this year, um, myself and three other women, one of which was Shelma Jun, um, uh, and two of whom are we're all rock climbers. Um, so there were two of us that are photographers, one videographer, mm. and Shelma, who is both the subject of our film and kind of our director of sorts, um, or at least the, the trip leader, I'll say. Um, so Shelma, this was all kind of, this was Shelma's idea. She was new to Arcteryx as a, an athlete. Um, Arcteryx is a Canadian based, um, technical outdoor apparel company. Okay. Um, and so she had a certain, uh, budget with them to do like adventures and expeditions. Uh, and she pitched this trip to South Korea, which is her home country. She was born in South Korea. Ah. Um, and asked the three of us if, they, if we wanted to come along. Of course we said yes. Um, South Korea is like 70% mountains, um, which is totally absurd. I, you know, you, you go to a place that you were never, never expecting to go in your life. Um, so everything is a surprise. You know, I didn't really have many, uh, preconceived ideas about it. Um, and it's nice to be able to go to a place with, with a blank slate. Um, and it was also, I mean, I don't know how we would have gotten around without Shelma, um, <laughs> who's, you know, speaks Korean, uh, not that many people speak English. And so we were really, uh, sort of dependent on her which was a little bit stressful for her, you know, but there was, that was just the way it was going to be. Um, but anyway, so yeah, we had, um, just short of three weeks. Uh, we spent, um, about a week combined in Seoul doing different, um, climbing events at gyms, um, and where Shelma was doing slideshows, um, and talking about Flash Foxy, which was really interesting just because, um, you know, internationally to talk about, or like across cultural borders to talk about like, uh, gender inequity is more complicated. I mean, it's complicated no matter what. And then, you know, you bring into it like a different country's culture mm -hmm. Absolutely. and history around sexual orientation and gender. And it's like, it, it, they have a different experience. So Shelma, who's, you know, she's very, uh, attuned into these things and very thoughtful. She was, uh, made sure to adjust and, you know, was not, was just saying, you know, this is how it is in America. How is it here? And, and it was an interesting conversation. People were very curious about the Women's Climbing Festival, which is sort of the, uh, the, the foundation of Flash Foxy at this point, this, the annual Women's Climbing Festival in Bishop, California. Um, and maybe a little mystified by it. Hmm. Um, but, Anyway, so after that, we, uh, we spent about a week um, climbing in the north, um, doing traditional rock climbing, so we were replacing our own equipment on granite, which was beautiful. It was like a Yosemite National Park um, in the jungle. <laughs> it was incredible. Uh, and then we did some sea cliff climbing. Um, yeah, you have some Coast. amazing pictures of that. And that was actually, it was really just a day of climbing that we had, but we just got really lucky. We 
found this place kind of randomly through our internet searches and ended up having this incredible day uh, climbing together. It was really fun. When I look at your pictures, I like I stop and I have to say to myself, like, well, she had to make that climb too. <laughs> and I was wondering from a like I guess from a from a technical aspect, um, I mean, it's a simple answer. It's like, hey, what's the difference between uh, taking pictures while you're rock climbing versus when you're on the ground? It's like, well, <laughs> you climb the rock. But I'm wondering <laughs> if like you have to think about technical things if it's uh, really difficult to get shots, like sort of the uh, the skill that goes into doing Getting, photography yeah, while you're climbing. Totally. Um, yeah, uh, people often ask me um, when I, because I am a climber too and I'm often, um, when I'm taking pictures of climbing, I know my subjects. They often ask me like, hey, do you want to hop on this? Do you want to climb? And I, my answer is always the same. It's like, no, I'm shooting today. Like I can't, they are such different brains or places that I have to occupy mentally. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, I can't like turn, once I've like occupied my photographer brain, even though I'm photographer, like even though I'm like taking photos of rock climbing, I cannot, like I could not go to that other space. I don't want to climb. I don't care to climb. Also when I'm shooting climbing, I'm not like even aware of like the climbing that they're doing. They'll, you know, they're very technical terms that climbers say to each other, like, oh, like I, did you see that like right handhold that I grabbed or like I missed that hold on the left and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I was taking photos. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of uh, safety and t- technicality, somebody like Savannah Cummins, who is a full-time adventure and, and climbing photographer, um, she's she's actually taught me a lot about being on a wall with a camera. Um, it's something that I'm learning still because mm. um, I don't do it that often. I probably am shooting, climbing like, I don't know, five to ten times a year, which sounds like, maybe it sounds like a lot, but it, it's really not. Like somebody like Savannah is probably hanging on a rope shooting, climbing like, I don't know, a hundred days a year at least. Um, so uh, I'm in terms of like, I mean, there are ways around doing the actual climbing that you're shooting to get up there, mm. um, sparing you the details. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of rope work. It's a lot of hanging in your harness. Um, it can definitely be a little scary and disorienting. The biggest thing for me is just being comfortable with my camera equipment up there. Like I'm just worried about damaging my camera, of course. Um, I think that's something that people get used to. Uh, Most climbing photographers shoot on a Sony, which is much smaller. Um, I shoot Canon, so like my camera is a lot bigger and heavier. And uh, Is it a long lens too? It can be, yeah. The 70 to 200, I would say, uh, is the most one of the most used like outdoor lenses. Um, I tend to avoid that lens like the plague because it is so heavy. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, climbing photographers use, use all different sorts of lenses. Um, of course, zoom lenses are, are uh, more utilitarian because you can, you know, go between focal lengths without, you know, you can't be missing anything by changing a lens or whatever. Okay. Um, but yeah. I think I read um, 
that you had taken like a pretty nasty fall once. I did. I did indeed. I have had many accidents. Really? Yes. I'm a very accident prone person. Uh, Ask anyone. (laughs) Was it outside? Uh, It was, yeah. Well, is that okay to talk about or? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yes. I've written about it. I've talked about it. I, I can, we can go there. Um, I, it has been three years now, um, which is crazy to think. Wait, three years? Yeah, three years. So, um, I was in the Gunks, which is two hours north, um, of here? Of us. Okay. Yeah, of New York City. The Gunks. <laughs> the Shawan Gunks is the full name. Um, and, uh, I had taken a friend climbing who, um, didn't have that much experience climbing outside on a rope. Um, and, uh, we were trying to get down a climb fast and she, this is PSA. So public safety announcement, uh, something called simul repelling is quite dangerous, uh, for a multitude of reasons, but we decided to do it, uh, to get down the wall faster, which people will often do, which is where uh, instead of repelling one time, one person at a time down the rope, uh, you do it at the same time. You're sort of acting as counter weights, counterbalances to each other uh, as you descend. Um, actually, a very famous rock climber, uh, Brad Gobright, uh, just died in this exact same accident oh. um, a week ago in Potrero Chico, Mexico. Um so it's repelling is like easily the has the most fatalities uh, in rock climbing. It's the easiest way to kill yourself or get gravely injured. Uh, simul repelling makes it even more dangerous. Um, so anyway, we made the mistake of simul repelling, uh, and I uh, went off the end of my rope. So uh, what that means is. Uh, when I, so like I went through the end of the rope, which me- meant that Kaori, my partner, fell immediately after me and fell, so we fell to the ground. Uh, we think we fell about 40 feet. Um, we were both incredibly lucky. We Were you conscious? Uh, I was, yeah. We, I may have lost consciousness for a second or two, but neither of us lost consciousness for very long. Um she landed, Carrie didn't lose consciousness. She landed on her uh, butt. I I kind of landed on my side. I went head first. Oh my God. Um, so uh, my wrist and face kind of took the blunt trauma, whereas she, um, her leg and right, I think it was her right, I don't remember if it was her right or her left shoulder took the, took the hit. Um, so we were hospitalized for a night, and uh, it was uh, incredibly horrifying. Very dark couple months after that, where I, you know, I kind of thought I would never climb again. Um, I was incredibly embarrassed for making such a stupid mistake and for endangering not just my own life but the life of a friend. You know, when you're the more experienced climber, it's totally, um, yeah, you're in charge and. You know, I I blew it. I made a series of mistakes, um, and you know we paid heavily for it. But we're very lucky. Um, did Did you have broken bones? And uh, I fractured my wrist. She fractured her shoulder blade. I wow. tore a bunch of ligaments in my wrist. That's that was the biggest uh, 
part injury. Um, but really, we were incredibly lucky. I mean, people people dive hitting the ground from 10 feet up. You know, it just totally depends on how you fall. Um, so, yeah, we were very lucky. Oh. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I don't, yeah, I feel, feel weird asking, like, a, no, it's okay. A, 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 really, it's okay. Okay. Um, all right. So, I, I brought up photography, <laughs> but where does your journey with photography begin? Um, I started taking photos actually when I first got injured. Um, when I was competing and climbing, and then dropped out of high school to like full-time train for the next uh, Youth World Cup that year, which was going to be in Beijing, 2005. Um, when I injured myself, suddenly, you know, I had a, you know, a, a, I don't even know if you can call it a quarter, an, an eighth life crisis. Um, and didn't know what to do with myself and uh, decided to travel. Um, so I got a job, uh, at a coffee shop close to my parents' house, um, saved up, I think like four grand and me and my boyfriend at the time, uh, traveled in South and Central America over the course of about a year. Oh man, Um, I did not know this. That's awesome. Yeah. And it was then that I discovered the camera. Um, this was, you know, pre-social media days, pre-smartphone days, um, and I found myself really wanting to uh, share my experiences with people and document the the wild and foreign things that I was seeing. And um, I had a point and shoot camera, a Panasonic Lumix, that I uh, just yeah, it was so much fun. I my I almost I found it almost disturbing. It was like I was as excited to see and do the things as I was to take pictures of them and show them to people mm. later. Uh, but yeah, so that was how I, that was how I discovered photography. Is, is the stuff from that year long trip available somewhere? It isn't, you know, um, the Panasonic, so that was like kind of the second half was digital. The first half was, um, analog so like I have scans somewhere uh but yeah no I don't I don't have many of those I think I think the the now snobbish photographer in me like it's like hard to look at those uh, photos that I took because I think they're from like so a technical bad. aspect okay yeah yeah because I just yeah exactly um but you know historically I mean they're they're wonderful to look at from the um perspective of uh time and experience <laughs> and memories I so I love talking about travel and like sharing like war stories from the road with people. Oh yeah, and let's do it. Okay, so well, <laughs> the the you know if I'm at work or something, or if I just meet you know folks for the first time and, and like oh where have you been or whatever, you know an easy place for people um, is like Thailand, right? Because like a lot of people go to Thailand, mm-hmm. or you know th- there are spots around the world that have a considerable amount of tourist activity, but a place that I've gone that I don't really get to like have a commonality with people is Kenya. Um, and I saw that you had a really cool project in Nairobi and I was hoping you could share what that was about. Yeah. Um, so I actually have quite an interesting relationship to Kenya. 
Um, I studied abroad in Nairobi for my final semester of college. Ah, oh, cool. Um, so I, I studied international development um, for my undergraduate degree. Uh, I went to American University in D.C. Um, and um, I was interested in East African politics. I had taken uh, a class in... And just so happened that there was um, a, a broad program in Nairobi. It was also attractive to me um, because it was not just a study abroad. It was a study work exchange. Okay. So um, because it was um, the, the workload was focused or the course load was focused on um, issues surrounding urban poverty, um, they placed you in an internship with an NGO. Um, or like a grassroots organization. Uh, so that was really what drew me to it on top of already just being like interested in the area. Um, so that was how I ended up in Nairobi. Okay. Um, and photography was kind of at the time still my end goal. I wasn't really, I've always had sort of a meandering way of, of going about things. And um I didn't want to study photography in school. I wanted to, I was interested in photojournalism and international work. Uh, so I thought I would get an academic degree and just pursue photography on the side. So I, my final, my final thesis project while I was working there was a, a photo essay. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, and it was sort of an, I got there in a, in a sort of, <laughs> Crazy way, but I ended up. I was working um, with a grassroots group uh, in Mathare, which is um, the I believe it's the second largest slum neighborhood in Nairobi. Uh, and I um, I was working with a group that was educating people around issues of sanitation and uh, open defecation. Um, trying to like cut down on um, typhoid um, and other uh, waterborne diseases, um, and through that work, there was a there was an amazing woman named Tatiana Team who was a PhD student from Cambridge, uh, and she was working with these these youth groups, and uh, and I sort of fall. I was just very quickly learned that she was somebody I needed to like hang out with. Mm. Um, she had, I don't even know if she had been there for two years, but she had like already like spoke Swahili. Wow. Um, and she, she was a total bad, badass. She was like very comfortable. She like had basically lived in Mathare um, for months at a time. She was an anthropologist. So, wow. she, you know, she was just very immersive in, in her um, like research techniques. Yeah. So, uh, Anyway, I started helping her with some some research and on the side while I was still working, uh, and then she started asking me to take photos of stuff, and then I started just photographing these guys that she was working with, um, namely um, uh, the Mathari youth group that I mean we called the, we like called them Takanipato. It's like the trash hustlers, basically, but. Uh, uh, they collected garbage for like a nominal fee. Um, and I would get up with them at like four in the morning and, um, photograph their whole route. Um, 
And uh, and then, is that the photo project that you're talking about? Yeah, and okay. people can go to your website and they can see that. Um, yeah, it's interesting, you know, my ex- I don't have a, a comparable experience, but I did, we, I was, when the school I was working at that I was talking about before we were recording, we had raised money and gotten a, a computer for an orphanage. And I couldn't tell you the exact neighborhood, but it was essentially like off of a slum outside of, you know, the city limits, I guess. And um, it, it was hard when you saw the conditions and you were driving through that. Um, I also saw that we went down to uh, Diani Beach, like near Mombasa. Um, oh, yeah. I went and to Beach. when you're, again, like there's like White Sand Beach, but on the outskirts of the White Sand Beach, mm-hmm. you see like pretty extreme poverty. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you're like far more immersed in what was happening in the political landscape in Kenya. But from what people were telling me, um, really shady kind of, uh, you know, political opponents disappearing or political opponents having like single engine plane crashes or a uh, massive loan from the EU not making its way into product, uh, into programs that would help uh, for social issues and things like that. So um, yeah, a tough thing to, to witness and to hear about. Yeah. It, um, Nairobi is, is an incredible, I mean, it, I don't say this lightly, but I, I really do like think that Nairobi is like my favorite place on earth. Wow. Um, I have never been happier and more alive and also more challenged. I mean, yeah, it was it was a really hard place to be and it was hard work and I um it wasn't just like hard because you're seeing, you know, because you're seeing, uh, suffering and poverty that is unimaginable and, um, injustice. It's, it's also the, and this is really why I left development work, um, in the end, uh, it was my feeling like I, I shouldn't be here. Um, it was just a, a constant existential battle that I was having with myself about being occupying these spaces, regardless of my intention to do good. Hmm. Um, there's an inherent, you know, power dynamic there when you're coming as an outsider, as a, you know, a by their definition, like incredibly wealthy. The fact that I could even fly to them, you know. Uh, to Kenya and exist in their space meant that I was like exorbitantly wealthy to them. Um, you know, that I ha- had an education, that I had access to their space and that they could never have access to mine was just, it's so problematic. And, and it just, it, it was confusing. It was like, what, what makes me think that I can really um, lend myself or like be useful to these people in any sort of lasting or sustainable way more than they could be to themselves. Like, uh, you know, as a foreigner, you just know so much less. There's so much nuance about any community and, and especially like the history of, uh, slum neighborhoods anywhere, but like in Nairobi, it's just, it's really complicated. Um, you've got like multiple tribes 
uh, occupying incredibly small space. Um, so like identity is a huge issue and then like everything is informalized. So, you know, there isn't even property ownership. And so how people occupy space, uh, is incredibly complicated. And, uh, when you don't even speak the language, it's like, you know, it's just, it's, it's complicated. Yeah. I think um, that's a really good point. I, I don't mean to, to cut you off, but no, no, I, was, I was thinking of something cause I've talked about this at length on the podcast, mm. sort of my place as a traveler in like the ecosystem of travel, maybe that's a silly way to, to put it, but I'll give an example. And, and, and maybe you started to touch on it a bit when you're talking about Korea, but uh, a place I talk about a lot, one of my favorite places in the world is Indonesia. Mm. And um, there's some people that are there that are very close to me. And I spent about four, three or four out of six months at the end of last year in um, Indonesia, mostly in Jakarta, but kind of went all around. And uh, my friend had a friend who was trying out, or trying out, was um, uh, trying to get a job in some sort of, uh, I think it was like a police officer, right? It, it was something uh, along those lines. And to do so, she had to have a virginity test. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so for me, it's like the first reaction is like horrified, right? Um, but then it's like, I don't know. I have to step back for a second and think like, well, what is my place within this? Right. Like, is it my place to say something? And I don't have an answer for this, but I'm just, it's something that I've thought about more and more as I get exposed to these things while traveling. Like, is it even my place to say something? Like I'm a foreigner, I'm an outsider. I have this idea of what like should be a universal human right for everybody. But like, is that right and fair for me to project that onto someone else and their values and their culture? Um, So yeah, I guess I just, I can relate to that a bit in the sense that um, it's a, I don't have an answer for it, but it's a, it's a tricky place to be in. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, you know, I mean, we're, we're always, uh, humans are constantly like learning more about ourselves as we continue on, uh, like things that we thought were, uh, at one time progressive values. Like, I mean, I, I constantly, my dad was an anthropologist. Um, and I, I often think about like, you know, when I, when I was younger and then like I lived in Santa Cruz, California, which is like a predominantly liberal white bubble. Uh, anthropology was like the most woke thing you could possibly do. It was like, you know, there's cultural relativity and concepts, you know, you're curious about other cultures and you're doing objective research and, uh, and then, you know, you realize, you know, I, as you like grow up and as the conversation evolves in anthropology and in other disciplines, like that there are all these uh, assumptions that we made about this that are, super, uh, Western white centric and, you know, that like, uh, actually, you know, you can never be objective. Mm. So like for an outsider to be doing ethnographies on another culture is always going to be like inherently problematic to some degree. You're bringing some type of bias to the table. Right, right, right. Exactly. And, and again, there's just a power dynamic there and it's like, you know, um, white people observing brown people once again or whatever, you know? So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's, there's no right or wrong 
answer to any of this. Uh, and, you know, I think every day about whether or not it was like the right choice to like leave development as a, as a pursuit or as a career path, um, just because it was complicated. It feels a little bit like a cop out because there's really good work that's done, um, internationally. Uh, but yeah, I, I found it very challenging. So then I guess maybe in relation to photography, I know you were saying you sort of developed a passion for it or fell in love with it when you were overseas and you were like, wow, I actually like, in addition to the experience, really like sharing the photos of these, of the things that I'm experiencing. Um, I don't know. And maybe the answer is no. And that's like totally fine. But like, is there a, is there like a mission statement to your work? Do you have sort of a, a trajectory for it or do you cover like certain types of stories because they're of interest to you? Um, I think that's something that's constantly changing. Uh, mm. If you can't already tell, I, <laughs> I have like, oh, I, I struggle with or I just am an ambivalent person. Like I have lots of mixed feelings about the things that I do. And I think that's both a strength and has been also crippling at times in my life, uh, especially in my work. Um, in terms of my photography, you know, I've been, I've been, uh, reading a book by, uh, Mary Ellen Mark, who's a famous photographer who passed away a few years ago. Um, and she, I just love the way that she speaks about photography. It's, I find it so, she just was so clear about her mission mm. and her relationship to her work and her process. And I find that so sort of uh, healing or like it, it, medicinal because I can, I, I don't have that clarity and want it. Um, and I have my moments, but, uh, I would say overall, like my photography is a, it's an artistic expression. Like it comes from a, a place of wanting to express myself to express myself. That's a big part of it. Uh, my mom's an artist. I was definitely born with the desire to, uh, create art and express myself, um, and then it's also wanting to capture something that is real. Um, and those two things are fun. You know, they're, those are kind of like contradictory things or it, they can seem that way um, or feel that way. Uh, so it's kind of about finding the, the, the go-between between, between mm. capturing what is, is real and expressing myself um, and so that, that can be both like a conflict and, and sometimes it's when it, when it works, it's like the best feeling in the world, you know? I'm very lucky in the sense that right now I have to be like, you know, the, the genesis of this podcast was, uh, I want to do a creative outlet and like, I'll talk about my travel stories and it's developed into, I get to share people's stories from all around the world, which is incredible and fulfilling and right now I have to be stationary because I have to make money again so that I can get mm -hmm. back on the road. And I'm very fortunate to live in New York City because I have access to so many different types of people. And I've been on a kick lately. It's just sort of how it's worked out where I've had, I've been having a lot of artists on, um, you know, people who do, uh, you know, 
were working with their hands, like fine art and painting and and things like that. Um, and then like yourself as a photographer, I have a photographer coming on uh, this upcoming Saturday. But it's often people who, you know, their their work or their skill, the, the product is the focal point of the thing that they do. And sometimes I even feel a little bad because I think, you know, maybe sometimes people are honored or flattered that I reach out to them, um, but they're not used to being the one, the being the focal point of the right, thing. Right, right, right. Yeah, and so I think sometimes people get a little bit cold feet or um, first say yes, but then feel a little weird about it. Um, and I'm not saying that that's the case with you, but um, you have a picture of yourself. Of, you have a few on your Instagram, but, and I'm sorry, I don't have, maybe I do have the name of the person that wrote the, I'll check. But it's a really, really beautiful picture. It's black and white, and um, you're wearing black, so... I think I know what picture you're talking about. Okay, cool. Um, it, it's possible by that it's by Kelly Elaine Smith. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, great, great Philadelphia-based photographer. Awesome. Check her out too, people. <laughs> um, but it's it's beautiful in a in a, in the sense that like I don't know why this appealed to me, but because the backdrop is black and what you're wearing is black. Uh, you're almost, and I'm going to give a strange reference maybe, but you're almost like emerging from uh, the abyss, the nothingness, mm-hmm. the the surrounding the background. There's there's a movie called Under the Skin, and the action is totally unrelated, but the uh, Scarlett Johansson is in it, and she's like a, an alien. <laughs> and it, it, the room is totally black, and the people like disappear into this like black pool of the floor and like that's how they get eaten but uh <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird sci-fi reference but it, it i was just thinking of that because it in a strange way like that sh- the, that repetitive shot they do in that movie is like it's just shot really beautifully um and so i think that's an, an amazing picture but i was wondering to circle back this really long rant um how do you feel when you are the focal point when you are on the opposite side of the camera you know, it's funny because, I mean, we all want, even if it's just a little bit, you know, most human beings, very few of us, like, don't crave or need attention or affirmation on some level. Um, it's like, it's just what makes us human. We're social animals. Um, so I, I... <laughs> I don't do well with um, certain forms of attention. Um, I like being in control of the attention that I get. So like, you know, social media, while not a free of anxiety by any means, uh, is a more uh, free space for me to have attention drawn to myself because I curate it, of course. Mm. Um I've gotten much better at having my photograph taken. That was actually something that I like focused on or that I like intentionally worked on uh, as a photographer because I do a lot of portraiture. I felt like how can I ask people to be comfortable doing something if I'm not comfortable myself? Um, So I sort of like took the journey and figured out how to like be comfortable in front of the camera. Um, so that form of attention I'm much, I'm better with. Um, I, I, you know, it's funny cause I'm, I'm speaking now saying this, but like 
I am really not great with uh, verbal attention or like having like, like I'm a terrible public speaker. I'm like, have really? really bad, yeah, I have a, like a very bad phobia. Huh. Um, so if there are like more people in a room or if I had to give a presentation, I did okay in college and then I don't know, something changed. And as I've gotten older, I've just gotten like totally phobic about that, about talking about myself or being the only person talking if there's like a large group of people. Wow. Um, does that answer your question? Yeah. And um, I'm, it's interesting. I'm the, flip, I'm the reverse of that. So um, you know, I was in grad school 10 years ago. And sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening, but the only thing that got me through grad school, like seminar, like circling up and talking about books was like, Taking my friends like Clonopin and Xanax, and mm-hmm. now like uh, you know I've been an assistant principal. I've talked in front of like auditoriums full of right, people. Right, so right. Been, I don't know where that switch happened for me, uh, but it happened at some point. Um, but that's interesting, and I, I appreciate you being honest about that. Uh, this this I'm going to ask something else too, and th- this is not to be sensational. I know sometimes like the wildest stories are like the sexiest to people's ears, right? Like oh that sounds really like wild or whatever. But I'm bringing this up because it, it seems like maybe there was also a project in conjunction with it. Um, and you talked about this. And it's interesting that you say that because I've seen you be incredibly vulnerable in this, uh, the new public sphere, which is social media, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you have a, at least photos, I don't know if it's part of a full series, in which you talk about how you had tuberculosis. Yes. Um, which... To me, I would think is like largely eradicated in the U.S. Maybe right. Uh, is this something that you're comfortable talking oh, yeah, about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I well, I almost brought it up because uh, I got it in Kenya. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. So. Um, is it from water? From from. It's it's waterborne, but you it's basically it's from another person's body. So it's uh, you have to inhale somebody else's like oh that's cough right that's right that's right yeah. Yeah, basically somebody like coughs and you breathe it in. Right. Um, is the most common way. Uh so I don't, you know, I don't know where I got it um exactly. Um but I it's yeah, that's all the TB thing is definitely like a big part of you know, I was already uh I wouldn't you know what? Actually, I wouldn't even say that. I don't think that I was entirely disenchanted with my development work. Uh I think that Getting tuberculosis was kind of the nail in the coffin. Yeah, I guess. yeah. Um, I was I was hoping to stay abroad. I I didn't want to come home after um, my program ended uh, in Nairobi. I I wanted to stay there forever, um, and I was looking for any way to to afford doing so, and uh, had a million uh, photo ideas and and projects that I wanted to work on and. Um, I was applying to uh, jobs kind of all over East Africa. Uh, and then I, well, I had a relationship, so that was that was a little complicated that was that had me wanting to go home. But I also it, it was it was less that than it was um, that I ran out of money, and then i uh, I started to have a weird physical sensation. I wasn't sick yet, but I had like a pain in my chest. Um, like it was really painful, so painful that I had to go, I was taken to the Aga Khan hospital in, in, uh, Nairobi by my flatmates. Um, I like couldn't breathe, it, you know, like that stitch, it's like when you've been running. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It to uh-huh. breathe. 
It's like, it felt like that, but it's like, instead of it going away at some point, it just like magnified and got worse and worse until like I could barely breathe at all. And, um, and they basically, you know, they took an x-ray. They said I looked fine. They said I probably had pulled a muscle and sent me home with muscle relaxants. Um, and it kind of did subside. The muscle relaxants didn't do anything, but it was like enough, like the pain wasn't severe enough that I was like, I need to go home immediately. But it was like enough that I just felt like all signs were pointing me to home. Uh, so I went back to Santa Cruz and it was about a month after getting home that I, I got like violently ill. Wow, that far after, huh? Mm-hmm. I mean, that you know, tuberculosis, it's a, it's a macobacteria, so... Uh, part of the reason tuberculosis uh, kills so many people, it's still, it's the, the, the leading infectious disease killer worldwide. Whoa. Um, still today, but you know, it's no largely idea. been eradicated in the U.S. because of um, antibiotics, access to antibiotics. Um, but part of the reason it, it's such a, is so deadly is because you don't know, people didn't know that they were sick until they were basically like already dead. Um, and that's because the behavior of a macrobacteria is that it, it sort of slowly takes over. That's also why it was called the consumption. That was, I don't know. If you yeah. Yeah. That. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's sort of like consuming you from the inside. Um, so, you know, the famous scene in uh, Moulin Rouge where mm-hmm. Nicole Kidman uh, coughs blood and, and then she sort of dies like shortly after. It's like that's, you know, a dramatization, of course, but like that that would sort of happen with people. It's like it, um, people kind of just thought that they had like a cold uh, and then all of a sudden were like hospitalized and then dead within a week. Oh, so, my God. So I, I got sick really, really fast, which is part of why I'm alive today. And, and so it was, you know, it was luck, it was weird sort of like, form of luck. Uh, what happened is that, and I don't know how, but I got a plural effusion, which is that, um, means that, um, the infection, the TB infection somehow went from my lungs into the plural cavity that like holds your lungs. And it's, that's basically like dead space. There's like your chest cavity. Hmm? Like your chest cavity? So it's like your your lungs sit in something called a pleural sac. Or it's like a membrane. Okay. Uh, and so there's like this dead space between your pleura and your and your lungs. Uh, so there's n- there's just nothing there. So it's like if an infection gets in there, it just kind of wreaks havoc because there are no good guys to fight them off. Wow. So that was part of why I got uh, sick so fast. Um, and... Uh, ultimately sort of what saved my life. And also, you know, that I uh, was in America and had access to the care I needed and was still on my parents' health insurance. I was 24. And, um, and yeah, I didn't have drug-resistant TB and responded to the drugs. It, it had gotten so bad that I had to have uh, lung surgery. Um, but, you know, all in all, like, I've, I've fully recovered and... Um, incredibly, you know, lucky to, yeah, have had the access to the care that I need because it's still, yeah, it kills uh, over a million people a year, and that's just because people don't have the drugs that they need. I get most of the recommended travel vaccines. Um, 
I don't ever recall that. Like, is that like something there that like no a stand? There's no vaccine. No. Wow. Um, there's a yeah. A lot of people uh, kind of erroneously think that there is in the U.S. because there's the TB test. So like, if you have to work in a school, yeah, yeah. you'll get the TB test, and people think that that's a vaccine, but it's actually just testing you for the antibodies. Whoa. Um, to see if you carry it, because it's you know it, even though the rates are down. I mean, I think like. 500 people, 500 people get TB a year in the U.S. or die of TB. It's a very low number and like 85% of those people are foreign born. Wow. Um, but uh, it's still, you know, it's still a health concern and they have to test you for it. So, All right. Let me... Let me maybe close it on yeah. a, on a happier on note. On an anti-TV note. <laughs> uh, I, and I appreciate you talking about that. No, That's of course. really. Um, this is what I mean. I, I've had I've had some close calls. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you yeah. you might be headed for a book one day. <laughs> um. I was again scrolling through your stuff, and I saw that you. Uh, Photographed Gloria Steinem. I did. I was wondering if, like, was that an assignment or like how you got that type of access? I did. Um, that was luck. Um, well, I don't know. Luck. It, I um, am friends with uh, her personal assistant. Okay. So that was the connect. That um, helps. So she, yeah, it, did, it does help. So she asked me to um, photograph her for her new book. Um, Gloria has a new book that I think she's on tour with right Mm -hmm. now, um, which is like a book of quote, like Gloria Steinem quotes. Um, and so it was for the book cover of that, which was incredibly exciting. You took the book cover? Well, you know, the, not the cover cover, but like the, her back cover photo. Oh, okay. That's amazing. But, well, yeah, it's amazing, except that she didn't actually like the photo and didn't end up using it. Ah, oh, crap. But okay. <laughs> I got to photograph Gloria Steinem and meet her. She was lovely. Um, we were in a cab headed. To, she was adamant about it being photographed at a bench that her friends bought for her in Central Park uh, oh. at 76th, I think. she. I think it was 76th or 80th. Anyway, uh, and we got a cab, you know, I mean, she's like 84 years old and still travels like three Vibrant, days. Vibrant, yeah. Like she's, but you know, she is 84 years old. So it was like, we're taking a cab, like, you know, six blocks or whatever. So we get in this cab and uh, she's like, oh my gosh, that woman just dropped $5 or like she just dropped money. And I'm like, what? And, you know, and I have all my camera equipment with me, including an Apple box. So I'm like very clunky and. She had like seen this woman like way down the street drop money and she's looking at me because she's already in the cab and she's like, well, aren't you going to chase her down? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, uh, sure. You know, so it's like I run, it's like I run down the street, I grab what ends up being $5 and I have to like sprint after this woman to give her this money and she... (laughs) She was so confused. She was like, you ran all this way just to give me $5? And I'm like, it was Gloria Steinem. She like, if Gloria Steinem asks you to do something, you just you do it, you know? That's a great story, though. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, worth, she didn't use the photo, but it was it was worth it. She's a pretty cool lady. So then what, I guess, what does the future hold for you? Do you have uh, goals, like dream projects? Like what's the five-year plan? 
five-year plan. Oh God. I'm <laughs> um, I'll just tell you a, a project that I'm working on right now. I am, um, I'm working on a project called, um, I finally named it, uh, bodies of work, um, which is, you have probably seen if you've scrolled through my feed. Um, it's a nude photography project. Um, I photograph, uh, female identifying athletes, um, naked. And, uh, the, the idea, it just started as like, I'm interested in female musculature. It was that simple. Uh, uh of course, uh, nude photography is sort of like inherently provocative, which I find sort of silly and intriguing and uh, annoying all, all at the same time. Um, but some of my favorite earlier works, uh, photographic works are like, black and white, semi-abstracted nude photography. Mm. It was like, you know, amongst like some of the, like the old school photographers in the early 20th century, like the human form was of course like the one of the most beautiful, profound things to capture. And I feel like now and like 2019, it's like kind of out of, I don't know, it's not in vogue anymore. Uh, and it's been done and, and so... I think I took it on sort of as a challenge, like it hasn't all been done. <laughs> um, and so it's sort of like the project is sort of an ode to these earlier photographers, um, one of whom, his name is Ruth Bernard. I, sh her work I absolutely adore. Um, and uh, and also like, yeah, an exploration of like what it means to be a woman now uh, versus then. And uh, that the forms that were photographed in the earlier 20th century were largely, you know, were softer, uh, curvaceous, uh, often sort of passive poses. And, you know, that my experience of the female form as an athlete and as a, a person of this day and age has uh, been totally different. So I wanted to like capture what I know, uh, or what, what I see the female form uh, as being. That's amazing. So that's that's my current project. I'm, I would like to make a book um, and have a show. And it's, you know, who knows how long it's going to take. It could be, could be a couple more years or maybe just six months. I don't know. There's someone who, uh, she's like one of my, I guess, like bucket list type of guests. Um, and I'm likely butchering her name, so very, very sorry. But do you know who Yagazi Amezi is? No, I don't know if I do. I'll send you her, okay, her, yeah, her handle. Uh, Freaking brilliant. She's from Nigeria. Her sister's actually an author. She, I believe she lived in Brooklyn. I don't know if she still does. Um, but she takes pictures for The Times. I've seen her take pictures for Natural Geographic. Um, and she had a series on scars and it mm. was largely women from Africa, but it was these extreme close-ups of scars mm. um, because she herself had been in an accident as a child and had, had been hit by a van or a bus and has uh, a scar like running mm. from like her knee to her ankle. And the close-ups are really incredible and beautiful because the bodies look like landscapes, mm -hmm. if, 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 if that makes sense. Um, so that, that made me, made me think of that. I would love to see that. Yeah. Second. That was yeah. actually sort of where it started for me. And I still, 
I still do shoot that, although I've kind of veered away from it a little bit, but yeah, was, was sort of like in that, um, going so close that you kind of don't know what you're looking at. That's Um, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. And that, that, yeah, that's just really kind of like, uh, intoxicating to me and I'm not entirely sure why, but that was sort of where it started. And I've since sort of I've just had so much fun shooting the project and working with these athletes. It's been like really empowering for them and creative for both parties, like on both sides of the camera. And, uh, so I've, I've been more experimental with it. I've gone, I've gone wider. So like you can actually see the full form of, of them and, and what they're doing. And I've had them be more dynamic. Whereas before I was having them do more like held poses and stuff. Um, to get those like abstracted close shots, uh, but yeah, I told I would love to see that that scar project. So. There's one you have. So um, I guess it was like Saturday. I was you know preparing some questions mm-hmm. and things like that, and I was going through uh, your work, and my girlfriend is doing a uh, yoga training program to be an instructor. And she had just come home from that, and like you know, she's discovering all new muscles now because she's doing this yeah, often, of and it's um, you know transforming her a bit. So we were going through, I guess, the photos from that project, and there's a woman flexing, and it's a view of her back, mm-hmm. and she's just shredded. <laughs> and I was sort of thinking of that too as like a as like a landscape. It's uh-huh. that's really cool. It's almost mountainous or like ripples of waves. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's really brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's awesome that she's getting into something and feeling the changes in her body. It's such an empowering process. Yeah. All right. Let me, let me wrap this. Um, you use the term a couple of times, and I think it's a cool way to end this. Uh, in describing other people, you call them badass. <laughs> but uh, I implore you to look inward because uh, you are a badass, and I greatly appreciate you sharing these stories. Uh, some of them really amazing. Some of them may be difficult to talk about. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for sharing your story, for educating me on climbing, uh, and for allowing me to feature you as a guest on TV TV. Of course. Thanks for having me, Tim. And folks, as always, can go to the show notes and you will find links to uh, all of Sasha's work. So please do that. Cool. Cheers. Bye. That's a wrap on episode number 136 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you so much to Sasha for coming on the podcast and sharing her story and educating me and all of you about mountain climbing, and photography. Thank you to all of you Voyagers, as always, for tuning in. Appreciate all of you. Got some other cool stuff coming up, and I'm excited to bring that to you. So for now, folks, I will say goodbye. And as always, please take care of each other. Until next time.